Welcome back to The Curious Clinicians, a medical podcast that asks why. I'm Tony Brew, and I'm joined as always by my friends and co-hosts, Avi Cooper and Hannah Abrams. How are you both doing? Avi, doing maybe? great. How are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. The sun is setting. It's a beautiful evening. Can't complain. Here with friends. Hannah, what about you? Fantastic day. A little rainy in Boston. You may hear it in the background. And this is probably your last episode as a internal medicine resident. Yeah, the audience cannot see it, but I actually have no remaining furniture in my apartment. Uh, so I'm recording from the ground tonight. Well, we're, we're uh, for this auspicious occasion, joined by another friend uh, and colleague, Chris Worsham. Uh, Chris is on the podcast today to talk about uh, his new book, Random Acts of Medicine, a book he co-authored uh, with Babu Jenna. And Chris, I, uh, you know, to kind of start the conversation, I was hoping you could tell us, uh, really tell the audience a little bit about yourself and a little bit about why you and Bapu decided to write this book. Sure. Uh, thank you guys for having me on. Uh, Long time listener, first time guest. Uh, so pretty excited to be here. I've actually worked with each one of you guys uh, at some point or another, so it's pretty cool to, to be with you guys today. Uh, so yeah, my name's Chris Worsham. I am a pulmonologist and a critical care physician uh, at Mass General Hospital in Boston and a health policy researcher at Harvard Medical School. And yeah, I'm the co-author, uh, along with uh, the economist physician, Bapu Jenna, of a book called Random Acts of Medicine, The Hidden Forces That Sway Doctors, Impact Patients, and Shape Our Health. And uh, it's out now. Uh, so uh, I shared the book with you guys, um, and I, I know you guys had a chance to take a look at it. We're going to get into it a little bit, but just to sort of overview of the book. So why do we write this book? I think we all know that medicine has been advancing really quickly since at least all of us got into the field. And one of the ways it's been advancing has been through data with electronic health records and some of these uh, really massive insurance claims databases. There are whole new ways we can take a look at data. And we hear a lot about big data, and there's lots of talk of all these things we can do with it. One of the things we can do with it is use it in creative and clever ways to get at cause and effect without uh, doing randomized controlled trials. We can look at what happened in the past, and by using what is called natural experiments, where people go down one path or another, patients might get one treatment or another, or get one drug or another, randomly by accident, not because a researcher sent them that way, we can actually get at cause and effect. We can start seeing things that we might not otherwise be able to see through traditional means. And when we look at things the right way, when we take that creative lens, um, we can see some really cool things about how our healthcare system works, how doctors work, and, and there's a lot to learn. And so that's what our research is about. Uh, and we just really wanted to share that and sort of scientific storytelling in a way that's approachable to anyone, whether you're someone who's steeped in biostats and epidemiology, or you're just someone uh, who who doesn't mind picking up a nonfiction book and isn't afraid of a graph or two. It's probably like, I'm probably more on the latter. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, Chris, you know, it was really, uh, really cool to sort of, you know, to to read to read the book. And one of the things that I was sort of thinking about, the impression that I was having as I was, you know, reading what you and Bapu wrote, is it felt a little bit like, you know, the moment in the matrix when like Neo like sees the code, you know, mm -hmm. 
and like everything is like made, you know, he sees what everything is made of at the, you know, at the end of the movie. I feel like a little bit like that with this, where all these hidden forces are swaying us in life, in medicine, in different directions. I guess I'd be interested to hear like how you and Bob sort of came to realize that this was something that you wanted to focus on as a career and then eventually write a book about. Yeah, I'm glad that you kind of got that takeaway because I think one of the things we try to get across is that there is another way to look at the world around you, not just medicine, but just the world around you. There are things that happen for a reason, and then there are things that happen for no reason. They just happen. They're accidents, they're coincidence. And my co-author, Bapu, is an economist, and economists have known for a long time that you can actually take advantage of these sort of random events that are happening all around you and learn cause and effect. Because it's really hard in economics to do like large-scale randomized trials that we rely on in medicine. In medicine, we have been doing natural experiments. We've been taking advantage of them for a while, but they're certainly not the norm, and they're not as common as you might think. So I initially got, got into this um, when I was, I guess, getting towards the end of my residency, um, going into pulmonary and critical care fellowship, and was you know, trying to get myself a little bit more familiar with the literature. And there's this really great study, senior author is Hannah Wunsch at the University of Toronto, um, about what happened to patients with septic shock when there was a drug shortage of the drug norepinephrine. And what happened was when that drug went on shortage, patients got switched to a different vasopressor for septic shock to keep their blood pressure up phenylephrine tended to be the most commonly switched one. And then when the drug shortage went away, all those patients that had been getting phenylephrine as a substitute went back to the norepinephrine. And what we saw was there was this clear drop-off during this shortage, which as far as patients are concerned, is completely randomly timed. And then they went back to using norepinephrine when the drug went off shortage. And lo and behold, during that shortage, there was an increase in mortality from septic shock when people were, again, at this completely randomly timed interval using less of it. Mm -hmm. And I thought, wow, that is a really, really cool way to answer a question that people had been asking, is norepinephrine this, yeah, for decades, is it, should it be our first line vasopressor? And that was a beautiful, clean, crisp, natural experiment that answered a question that needed to be answered. And no one had to, you know, flip a coin or use a random number generator or or any of that. It just happened by accident. And I just thought that was the coolest study. And then throughout my fellowship, as I was meeting with various people I might want to work with for research, someone suggested that I meet this guy, Bapu, uh, who's an economist physician. And, and if you had told me that I would end up, you know, collaborating with writing a book with an economist um, <laughs> five or 10 years ago, I, I might have laughed in your face. But it turns out that these really cool, clever study designs are just so common in economics, and they're gaining popularity in medicine, um, but they're underused. And so this book is sort of a way to show you how powerful these natural experiments can be. It's interesting. We we talked on episode 58 about a drug shortage natural experiment when we talked about furosemide and when Ontario had a shortage of IV furosemide and they were forced to use PO furosemide. And they saw no difference in uh, length of stay and readmissions and all these outcomes for patients with acute heart failure when they got oral instead of IV furosemide. Uh, I think that may be the only natural experiment we've talked about, but I remember when I came across it, I thought immediately of you and Bapu and the work that you guys do. 
Yeah, and, and drug shortages are really nice because they they really <laughs> well they're they're, they're, they're great. Well, they're <laughs> just great. <laughs> yeah, so they're not great. And, and like uh, <laughs> right now, my wife, who's a chemotherapy pharmacist, is facing a shortage of carboplatin, um, oh, and wow. is, it's actually really horrible. But from the standpoint of natural experiments, they're very convenient. Let's put it that way: they're very convenient because. What natural experiments really rely on is that there be a external force that right. is completely unrelated to what's happening to the patients. And patients, you know, whether or not you show up with heart failure is completely unrelated to whether there's a supply chain issue in IV furosemide or carboplatin or, or what have you. Uh, but there are lots and lots and of other kinds of randomizing events out there uh, that we can take advantage of and, and learn something. Yeah, I'm going to be an oncologist in 10 days. And so this has been really top of mind. And there's actually been a lot of oncology drug shortages recently, which I think is like now getting me thinking about this. But I think more broadly, the thing that you do in the book is something that we try and do here, which is there are so many physiologic questions out there that don't make sense to do in a randomized control trial that have meaning in our clinical practice and trying to look at what is the old data? How far back can we go to look at this? One of the studies that I really enjoyed was you looked at a, a natural study of whether or not being president or prime minister makes you age faster or die younger. And I loved this because I thought Avi would really like it specifically because you went back to like the 1700s, right? So just to explain to the audience. Yeah, that's really curious clinicians uh, territory, right? The, it is so, <laughs> I mean, there's a lot, I think, in it, in the book that uh, is very curious clinicians territory. But so just to explain the experiment briefly, please correct me if I'm wrong. You tell a story of how Barack Obama and many U.S. presidents have gone gray early in the pregnant, uh, presidency. And you ask the question, is the stress disproportionately essentially making them, quote unquote, age faster? And so you use this endpoint of do people who have been president or prime minister die younger or die relatively fewer years after election than their age-matched counterparts. And you use basically the sample of people who have a similar background. You try and reduce confounding by using the group of people who lost, saying that these people probably have pretty similar exposures as high-level politicians. And the only real difference is, did you win an election? And obviously, there's, you know, there's some question there. But you are actually able to, like, I cannot imagine how many, like, extremely old records you had to go through and Wikipedia pages you had to go through. Like, I just, I was sitting there imagining this spreadsheet. And you find that there actually is a difference, that people who had had that flip of a coin election result uh, died younger after the presidency or after the prime ministership internationally, uh, which is just an incredible, incredible thing to, you know, obviously hypothesis generating. Yeah, that was a really cool study that that my co-author Bapu had done and it we we talk about it early on in the book as a way to kind of get people thinking about how a natural experiment might work because we talk about people accidentally or randomly going down one path or another and of course who becomes president is not a random thing. It's not like people are flipping the coin in the voting booth um although some days it does seem that way. But Right. It, it's not random who becomes president and who doesn't. But when it comes to the health outcomes of a 55-year-old person who is running for president, right, their LDL, their long-term risk of stroke or heart attack, as far as that is concerned, 
it is essentially random. It's as good as random, as we would say, whether or not that person wins the presidency or not. And so when you compare the Barack Obamas and the George W. Bushes to the Al Gores and the Mitt Romneys of the world, if you just look at one pair of those, there's not a lot you can do with it. But if you lump all of them together, you lump all the runners up together, you lump all the winners together, and you do things like adjust for age, right, to make sure that you're looking at their life expectancy and not just how long they live, right? We, because obviously older people are going to be more likely to die sooner simply because they are older, right? So after you adjust for life expectancy and things like that, you have this as good as random designation. Who's going to get exposed to the stress of the presidency and who's not, right? And, and we kind of lump all of that in. Well, if they die younger, we can kind of attribute everything that happens in the presidency or the prime ministership or what have you, everything that goes along with it, we can say is responsible for that shorter life expectancy. I find that so fascinating. You know, that particular study is is unique in a way in, in some of the things that you talk about in the book in that it's it's actually small numbers. A lot of what you uh, and Babu write about are these natural experiments, including tens of thousands, in some cases, even hundreds of thousands of patients. And there's, I feel like, so much power in those numbers. And the chapter that I was most fascinated about is one where you talk about this idea of left-digit bias, which I think we're all aware of, right? The idea that the car that's $4,999 appears quite significantly cheaper than the car that's $5,001, uh, because the idea that that left digit is lower, right, five versus four, and we kind of ignore all the, the subsequent digits. But one of the studies you talk about in that chapter, I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about, in addition to maybe telling us a little bit more about this idea of left digit bias. So uh, you and Bapu and Jamin Wu and Michael Barnett did this study looking at adults, basically people who are 18 years old in one month, and children, basically people who are 17 years old and 11 months, and you looked at how likely are emergency medicine providers to prescribe an opiate based on that essentially, you know, couple month difference in age, about you know, what you found and, and what that sort of tells us about the, this bias of the left digit. So this idea of the left digit bias is, like you said, Tony, something that we're all familiar with it's it's why the grocery store puts that bag of chips at 4.99 and 5 and not $5 because in our heads we basically the theory and and I am not an expert uh linguist um although a lot of people have looked at this and what they say is you know obviously we didn't have numbers throughout all of human history we had to judge quantities on this sort of analog scale that pile of whatever is bigger than this pile, that lion is bigger than that lion. And so we have this analog scale in our head. And anytime we see a number, which is sort of digital, if you will, we have to map it to this analog scale in our head. And we don't do that perfectly. We take little shortcuts. So if you see, for example, a number that is 41 and you compare it to 58, your brain actually doesn't really bother with the one and the eight. It just sees 40-something and 50-something and tells you, well, 40 is smaller than 40-something is smaller than 50-something, and you don't worry about the rest. And so this comes up in the grocery store uh, on a used car lot, sure, but as we all know, it comes up all the time in medicine. We are constantly looking at numbers, and as physicians, we are constantly making really important decisions off of numbers. 
so we could think about it all kinds of different ways, right? That, that, you know, the potassium is in, in the electronic record is black when it's 5.5. And then when it's 5.6, it's red. And so suddenly it's gone from normal to abnormal, even though there's like not really a difference between a potassium of 5.5 and 5.6, if that's the upper limit of normal. Yeah. I mean, the, the one that I see all the time is the patient has had a hemoglobin of 7.1, 7.2 for two weeks, and suddenly it's 6.9. And the residents, uh, and I'm not, this is not meant to be a criticism of residents, but they just happen to be the people I work with. They immediately write for a transfusion. The patient is the exact same patient, and it's quite likely that their total body hemoglobin is no different, but there's something about that right. six, that leading number six that changes the mindset right. completely. And, and even like it's well within the margin of error. It could have been even the same blood vial of course. could be the difference if you ran it twice, could be the difference between transfusion and no transfusion. Or even bigger, like higher stakes issues, it could be the difference between kidney transplant and no transplant. It could be the difference between open heart surgery and PCI, right? So there's all kinds of numbers that, that come up all the time. And this study that you had mentioned, we really focus on adolescence. And if you guys can remember back to that dark time, um, right? The day you turned 18, you kind of wake up and you're like, well, I'm, I'm 18 now. Nothing biologically has changed between when you were 17 the day before and when you're 18. But suddenly the world starts treating you differently. And so, right, you're you're now the age of majority. And it's no different if you were to walk in, if you were to, whatever, fall down, break your arm and go into an emergency room. If you go in on your 18th birthday, you're probably going to be treated differently than if you had come in uh, when you were 17 and 11 months and change. And so we tried to take advantage of that in the study. And what we did was we looked at and we took a, a really big commercial insurance claims database with hundreds of thousands of adolescents around age 18, so 17-year-olds and 18-year-olds um, who went to the emergency department for any reason. And we just looked at what is the probability based on their age in months, so like 17 and 8 months, 17 and 9 months, all the way up to 18 and 11 months. What is the probability that they are prescribed an opioid during that visit? And what we saw was there's this gradual trend as people get older, they're more likely to be prescribed an opioid, which probably isn't surprising, right? That that there's this overall trend that people think is, you know, as people get older, perhaps opioids are more safe or, or whatever. But what happened was right at age 18, there's this sudden jump in opioid prescribing. And when we see that sudden jump, we call that a discontinuity. There should be a continuous increase. And then there's a sudden jump, it's a discontinuous increase. And what that suggests is that there's something happening right at that age where these patients, for whatever reason, and we, we try to dig into what those reasons might be, but for whatever reason are suddenly being treated differently. And the only logical reason one can come to is there's nothing else biologically happening at age 18. The thing that happens at age 18 is you're suddenly an adult. So what that tells us is that for these kids who are adolescents around that age, being considered an adult and having a doctor lump you in as adult or having the system treat you as an adult yields different treatment for you than when you're considered a child. And what we found was, was that they were, I don't remember the exact numbers, but something like 9 or 10% more likely to get prescribed an opioid. And furthermore, down the road, 
they're about that same percentage um, more likely to have an adverse event related to opioids in the year following that emergency department visit. So this just, it felt very real. It felt very plausible, right? There's no other obvious explanation here other than just being treated as an adult versus a child. And what that suggests is that this arbitrary distinction we make, adult versus child, at age 18, is leading to what we would guess would be unnecessary opioid prescriptions when people consider someone an adult. In that chapter, you talk about you know, troponin tests between a 39-year-old and a 40-year-old, and the 40-year-old gets more, and cabbage between a 79-year-old and an 80-year-old, and the 79-year-old gets more cabbage. And as I read that chapter, which I thought was this fantastic argument and just layered on, and layered and layered, I was like, I can see myself being susceptible to this. On rounds, just being like, yeah, I don't remember his exact age, but he's 80-something. Yep. And like we just sort of lump off that last digit. He's 80-something versus 70-something. And I know that the 80-something-year-old I probably treat slightly differently unconsciously. Because yep. all of these things, Chris, are these are biases that we're susceptible to. Is that right? Yep. The specific name for this we would call the, the representativeness heuristic, which is really rolls off the tongue. But it's this idea that you have in your head of, if you say he's an 80-something-year-old guy, or he's an 80-something-year-old former smoker, or he's an 80-something-year-old former smoker veteran, right? Your brain instantly starts building up an image of who this patient is that's based off your past experience. It's why when I tell you, hey, do we want to go to McDonald's for lunch today? You know in your head what McDonald's means, right? You're not going to be getting a Frosty there because that's not what happens. At, well, you guys are probably healthy enough to not know where Frosties come from, but Frosties are at Wendy's, right? So in your head, you know what a McDonald's is. Absolutely you know, not. Definitely not. <laughs> right? In your head, you, you know what a McDonald's is. If I say, let's go to the grocery store, you're not going to be expecting to buy new tires there, right? Because you have these mental shortcuts that say, this is what a grocery store is. This is what a McDonald's is. This is what an 80-year-old former smoker is, right? And you start to make assumptions subconsciously whenever you put somebody in a bucket. And this is what we were seeing was happening at age 18, right? We see this 18-year-old's an adult, and I need to think of them this way. This 18-year-old is a child, and I need to think of them this way. And that's a piece of it. And there's also probably when we draw these lines in the sand that have to be drawn somewhere, they're almost always arbitrary, right? So you're 17 and something, and you show up in the ED, you go to the pediatric ED. You're 18, you go to the adult ED. And there's no bias there per se, but it does sort of impact patients' care in a, in a way that's completely arbitrary. One of the things that I really loved about the book, too, is all these different sort of domains and areas of specialization that, that, that it brings together, these natural experiments. You know, obviously, there's the economics piece. It's a book about medicine and healthcare, but there's really a lot about psychology as well and sort of just how we make decisions and how we approach things. But then the flip side is the sort of the mathematical, the random you know, it's almost like chaos component that I thought was really interesting. And as a pulmonologist and intensivist, I really gravitated toward the chapter on influenza and vaccination about that. And just to sort of, to summarize again, also, like Hannah said, correct me if I'm wrong, but the experiment that you all ran was sort of looking at the vaccination rates of influenza amongst children and how it was affected by their month of birth. And that basically kids that were born during the fall and had birthdays that fall well, when they're getting their annual checkups with their pediatrician, when the influenza vaccine is available, they were much more likely to actually get vaccinated than for kids with, you know, with summer birthdays or with 
you know, with spring birthdays that they were getting had lower rates of vaccination, which has really public health implications. And it sort of reminded me a little bit of the um, of what Malcolm Gladwell wrote about in Outliers with the hockey players and how just sort of an overrepresentation from these winter month uh, in the NHL of birthdays. So I, I just I found that really interesting. It just seems like one of those things that has potentially huge health and economic implications for our society, um, this sort of this randomness. Yeah, birthdays are um, really helpful when we're thinking of natural experiments because they are, you know, a phrase we use over and over again is as good as random, right? They're not perfectly random. There, there are slightly more children born in the winter months than, than earlier in the year, but they're as good as random when it comes to this idea of would you expect a child born in March to have different health outcomes than a child born in- They should have the same physiology. Right. They should, their bodies are the same. Biology is the same. You could probably dream up some bizarre circumstances where maybe it matters, but generally patients born in different months are what we would say are counterfactuals to one another. What happens to a child born in April is what we would expect to happen to a child born in September had they been born in April and vice versa. Right. So we take advantage of that a lot throughout the book. And what you're describing there with the hockey players um, is an example of the relative age effect. So this idea that when you look at a, a class year of children, for example, there are some kids in first grade who are older than other kids in first grade. Um, and we run into problems. Again, this is that representativeness heuristic coming back again. We have expectations for a first grader, right? This is how a first grader should act. We don't have expectations for, well, this is how a first grader who's young for their class should act, and this is how a first grader who's old for I mean, maybe a good a good first grade teacher might have that, but generally speaking, we fall into these, these habits of lumping people together. Um, so birthdays come up in, in that aspect. And then, like you said, there's this other aspect of, well, if your birthday happens at a certain time of year and your doctor's visits are timed around your birthday, which they are for young children what does that mean? And for the flu, it actually means quite a lot because like you said, if you're a child born in the fall, you go for your four-year-old checkup in the fall, you can get the flu shot when you're there. You have a child like mine who's born in the summer. I go for his four-year-old checkup. They're not going to have the flu shot. I have to make an extra appointment to come back, um, which is a real pain in the butt um, for me. And I have a pretty flexible schedule um, for most people, it's it's an even bigger pain in the butt to bring their kids back. And what we found was uh, that there's almost a 15 percentage point absolute difference in vaccination rates between children born in the fall versus children born in the summer. And that's huge. And again, this is one of those things where we have to, the, the data don't necessarily tell us exactly why it's happening. But if we start using common sense, and say what could possibly be going on, one of the biggest things contributing to that is the sheer logistics of coming back for that extra doctor's appointment. That's young children, but you can imagine any time with an adult, they might have to come in for an extra appointment. There's a logistical barrier there. And so it wouldn't be hard to dream up some scenarios where just logistics, availability of a vaccine, anything like that could really dramatically be impacting our patients. And what we found with these young children was they missed the vaccine, they ended up getting flu, and they ended up spreading that flu to their family members, all because it's a pain in the butt to come back to the doctor. 
this may be a little bit like uh, too much information, but I recently turned 45. And just a few months before my f- uh, 45th year, uh, year birthday, I had a visit with my PCP. And uh, he was like, you know, colonoscopy, cancer screening. I'm like, I'm not 45, man. <laughs> and so I didn't even have to entertain it because I wasn't 45 yet. And I'm going to hopefully skate along without having gotten it uh, a little bit longer because um, um, I'm sorry, Hannah, but I'm not enthused. <laughs> you know, actually, the thing that this makes me think of a lot is um, women who decline pap smears because they're on their menstrual period, which is random at the mm. time of their primary care visit, obviously a very much more difficult natural language, natural experiment to do, but just really reminds me of like how much chance can come into cancer screening. But that's a, that's a really good idea. I don't know if anyone's ever, the problem that that's a very good idea. The challenge there would be how well is it documented the reason why they declined it. Right. Um, but if that was documented, that is a phenomenal idea. All right. Listeners, if you're interested, we're going to get a big group together. Email us. Um, but I want to ask you about a different July effect. So you guys talk about this July effect with the children and the, um, the flu vaccines. I, I want to ask you about another random July occurrence, which is the changeover of interns and medical training years, um, which I have seen in the past referred to as the July effect. And you guys don't write about it in the book, but I've seen conflicting natural experiment studies on this topic. And I'm just wondering so obviously the fact that all of the or like many of the studies on this topic conflict whether there is or is not a decrement to care in July. Um so I'm wondering what you think of those studies in general and what they tell you I- about the difficulty of doing these kind of natural experiments. If you don't have an answer, totally understand. Yeah, well no, it it's a it's a very good question and one that people ask a lot and the 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 studies out there are kind of mixed um and people have looked at it um it's one of those things where i think it it's probably about asking the right questions and looking at the right patients you know if you have a patient coming in with relatively straightforward community acquired pneumonia on 2 liters of oxygen do i think the july effect is is going to take hold on that patient probably not um, but if you have really complex patients, um, maybe high, you know higher risk patients, higher mortality patients uh, at high risk for complications, or might need really complex care, complex decision making, urgent decision making, I, I think there there are some studies out there suggesting that it's those higher risk patients where we may want to be paying a little bit more attention, and that's kind of intuitive feeling. Those are the ones where you really want that intern to have extra supervision. Um, you know. I, I'm not going to lie. I'll be honest. Like, I would rather get hospitalized uh, in May or June um, than July. Uh, but but that's just my feeling. And it's nothing against the the interns that we all once were. Uh, but, you know, the, there's prob you. Why would you why would you want to expose yourself to that inexperience? Um, on the other hand, in theory, all of our backup systems should take care of that. Right. So. So it doesn't surprise me that that the results are mixed because I, I bet it's sort of a heterogeneous effect, and you probably have to look in in the right places. I mean, that's the thing is it, all the other factors that that play into July um, are hard to control for. I suspect like there are probably places that put different residents on in July, different attendings on in July, and you just you can't capture that 
uh, and that's not controlled for in the way that simply looking at a singular patient, 79 versus 80, right? That I think is a little bit easier to to, to get a sense. All right, I'm I'm capturing all these unmeasured yep. confounders. Yeah, and there's other stuff that happens in July too, right? Like Fourth of July barbecues. That's a lot of sodium intake if you've got heart failure, maybe you're spending more time outside, maybe you're going on vacation, right? So it, it's like Tony was saying, it, it can be really hard to account for all of those unmeasured things, um, which makes interpreting these the studies of the July effect all the more challenging. But it, it's a good question, I, I think, and, and I know people have been trying to answer it, but uh, at the same time, like most people can't help when they get sick. So what are you really going to do about it, um, right? Like we already have pretty heavy supervision of those interns, like how much more supervision could we realistically be giving them? And interns have to start somewhere, right? They have to. So it's tough. With a lot of these, it's like, well, you could find something, but then what are you going to do about it? Right? And, th- and that's the sort of the healthcare policy aspect to all of this is, is this is this actionable? Is there something we can do about it? And we try in the book, we try to present studies that that actually give us some insights about what we should be doing even if it doesn't answer those questions perfectly. And really, a lot of it forces us as physicians to, to sort of look at ourselves as, as imperfect human beings who, who have to make the best of, of what we've got. And shout out to all the new interns out there listening yes. to this in July. Yeah, exactly. We're rooting for you. Yeah. Like yeah, we're, speed we love you. We love you. We try to listen to every other podcast. Yeah, I'll say, you know, I think this, this book would probably be a nicer read for you than like House of God as far as uh, preparing you for what's coming. Yeah, please. See, yeah, so um, uh, as we close, uh, you know, I, I want to say a few things, and then, and Chris, I, I'm hoping you can maybe give us a, a little bit of a final word. I really do think this is a, a great book for both clinicians like the four of us. I mean, there's there's so much that is relevant to the day-to-day practice of a clinician, but I think you and Bapu do an absolutely phenomenal job of writing a book that's also approachable for people who are not in clinical medicine. Like, I think my parents who are not in medicine would love this. I think it's absolutely fascinating. But is there anything that that we haven't talked about uh, tonight that uh, you kind of want our listeners to know? And because this episode is going to be released uh, the week that the book is uh, out and and actually available, where can people find it? Sure. So... um I'll answer your second question. It's it's everywhere you you would buy your books. Yep. You buy so books. you can just plug it into Google and, and get it wherever you like to buy books, whether that's um, an independent bookseller uh, or um, your favorite uh, free shipping destination. And are you going to have an audiobook yep. with your dulcet um, yes. tones? So dulcet. So dulcet. Uh, yep. We we just we actually just wrapped on on the audiobook, so it's it's out there. Um, I think you can use oh, Audible fantastic. credits or wherever you get audiobooks or ebooks as well. Um, as far as the the sort of larger point, one of the biggest things that that led us to write this book is is this idea that we have all this data, and if we just look if we just look at every headline right now, there's lots of fear and concerns and and sort of confusion about like what does it mean to have all of these data available to us now that we didn't have before and if we take the time to think about how we can use data right and use it creatively we can do really really cool things with it and that's what we were trying to show everyone with this book is we can do really cool things really like they're fun studies, even though a lot of them are about serious things. They're fun studies because they make you think about medicine. If you're a physician, it makes you 
Think about the way you practice in a different way. If you're a patient, it makes you think differently about how you experience the healthcare system in a different way. And it takes practice to start to think about the world, your your job as a physician, your experience as a patient, in terms of a series of intentional and also unintentional events and circumstances that have led you to where you are. And I think it, it teaches us as physicians to be humble about what we're doing um, and that we don't know all the answers and that we're making up a lot of it. And I hope on the patient side of things, um, it kind of humanizes us and, and shows we're really working with a human brain, a limited set of data and a limited set of knowledge. And it's it's hard. And, and that's what our job is, is to help people navigate the uncertainty. Um, and I, we, we try to bring to light a lot of the hidden stuff that's happening, that, that if you just look under the hood, it's there and you can learn a lot about how everything works and how we might change it for the better, both on the big picture level and, and on that sort of day-to-day, one-on-one doctor-patient interaction. Well, I'll say if, if those were some of your goals, uh, you clearly met them. And so, I don't know, Avi, Hannah, I don't want to speak for you, but I, I think our listeners would absolutely love this book. Um, and uh, July 11th, it's available apparently uh, anywhere you could possibly find it, including uh, in an audiobook form. Uh, Chris, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Uh, it was an absolute pleasure. Yeah, thank pleasure. you for having me. It's, it's, it's a real honor. Avi, Hannah, any final words? The book was genuinely really good. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, no, this is really exciting and thanks for coming on. All right, everyone. We will see you with our next episode where uh, it'll probably be back to just the three of us. So uh, <laughs> if, if we notice, yeah, exactly. If we notice a, a huge uh, drop off in listenership, uh, we'll have to invite Chris back. So get ready, Chris, for the re-invite. All right, with dulcet tones. <laughs> That's right. All right. Good night, everybody. 